Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to Accessible World's special series program. And we have, of course, our star for these events. He's been on so many of them. And we want to wish him a very happy new year. And he's going to educate me, which will be a miracle, to classical music. But because of, because Ira Fistel is doing it, I, I'm here. And uh, without further ado, I want to introduce Mr. Ira Fistel, and we're proud to say he's now from California. Ira, the telephone is yours. Welcome. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, okay. I'm going to mute. <clears throat> Pardon me for the cough. Uh, this program was meant to be done in the year 2013. <coughs> um, that would have been in, I guess, uh, December. However, because of unforeseen circumstances that we couldn't get around, we had to postpone it to 2014. So technically, we're a little out of date. However, I wanted to talk tonight about three great composers, one who was born in 1913 and the other two who were born in 1813. So last year was the centennial of the birth of the first of them and the bicentennial of the birth of the other two. The three composers we're talking about are Benjamin Britten, an Englishman, uh, who was born in 1913, the German composer Richard Wagner, who was born in 1813, and the Italian composer Giuseppe Verdi, who was also born in 1813. All of them had one major, major thing in common. They were all great composers of opera. Uh, you can argue, well, you can almost hardly make any argument uh, against the point that uh, Wagner was the greatest German composer of opera, uh, Verdi was the greatest Italian composer of opera, and Britain has been the greatest com English-speaking composer of opera, uh, native-born in, in, as an English-speaking composer. Uh, George Frederick Handel, I guess, spoke some English, but uh, he wasn't an Englishman. He was a German who moved to England, and his first language was German. So anyway, uh, these three have that in common. They are all great opera composers. Now, what is an opera? Okay, this is getting very basic, but an opera is a stage work designed to be performed on stage with costumes and props and whatever, in which the uh, performers sing rather than speak all the lines. That means somebody has to write the music that they sing, and somebody who writes the music is the composer of the opera. So opera is sung theater. Uh, musical comedy, and as we know it in America, is actually a kind of light opera. Um, and Viennese light opera, you know, uh, Johann Strauss, the Fledermaus, that was also a kind of sung theater, uh, a, a variation of opera. What we usually think of when we think of opera is the big, dramatic, powerful, uh, tragic works. And we will talk about some of those in the course of this evening and uh, in maybe futures. But the point here is that opera is theater 
with lines that are sung instead of merely spoken. What does the dimension of music add to the theatrical atmosphere, the theatrical uh, vehicle? Well, it adds a tremendous power of emotion because emotion can be evoked in music far more easily than it can be evoked from speech. And that's the thing that makes opera so different, so remarkable, so powerful, and so beautiful. When the opera composer knows his job and happens to have the genius to be able to find the right notes to express just the emotions that he's trying to express, uh, the emotions in the mind or the speech of the character that he's writing for, then opera becomes uh, what Wagner wanted it to be, a total experience, a total theatrical experience involving everything from the sets to the costumes to the wigs uh, to the voices, uh, to, the, to the meaning of the words, plus the impact of the music. It's a, a, a total artistic experience. Well, all right, that's what Wagner and uh, also all other opera composers seek to do when they sit down to write an opera. And there have been some very interesting subjects of operas, especially lately, um, we've had an opera written on the Great Gatsby in the, in the last few years, the Scott Fitzgerald novel. We had one written on the story of a nun in uh, Louisiana. I don't remember the name of the play, but it was turned into an opera. Uh, Dead Man Walking, was that it? I think so. Anyway, uh, many, many subjects have appeared in operas. I got interested in opera in the first place because... I grew up in a musical household. My mother had been a piano, piano teacher and was a pianist, and my father was a violinist. My mother was nuts about opera from the time she was a young girl, and she used to tell me about all the stories about all the great singers that she heard. Mary Garden. Uh, Mary Garden was a soprano in the 20s, sung mostly the French repertory, and she was a character to the point where when they appointed her director, and she changed the title to Directa in, uh, um, of the Chicago Opera, she spent so much money in one year the company went bankrupt, and that was the end of that. But uh, she was a great singing actress. Uh, then there was Claudia Muzio, whom my mother used to talk about all the time, an Italian dramatic soprano, whose recordings I heard later in my life. Uh, she used to tell the stories about going to the opera. Well, I couldn't get away from that. And when I was about 14 years old, I bought my first ticket, uh, season ticket, to the Chicago Lyric Opera in the very last row of the second balcony, the furthest seats from the from the, uh, the uh, stage that you could get, four or five floors up. <laughs> it might have been six floors. And, uh, you know, the... Actors, the singers on stage, looked minuscule from there. But oh, the sound. Oh, the glorious sound. And I heard some of the greats. I heard Birgit Nielsen in her prime. Uh, great, great Swedish soprano. I heard Renata Tabaldi, the great Italian soprano. 
Tito Gobi, the great baritone, Boris Christoph, the great bass, uh, and heard opera after opera after opera. And I went every week for, gosh, uh, 20-some-odd years to the lyric, wound up having seats in the first row of the first balcony, and then I had to give them up when I came to California. It hurt to give up those seats, i got to tell you. All right, so here we have three of the greatest opera composers who ever lived, all celebrating anniversaries in the year 2013. I'm going to start talking first about Benjamin Britten, who was a very interesting man, um, not only a great opera composer, but had many other dimensions. He was also a composer of other music besides opera. These three had much in common, and I'll point out some of the some of the similarities. But they also had some incredibly different, just incredibly different uh, characteristics. We'll start with Britain. His name is spelled B-R-I-T-T-E-N, but it was uh, just a marvelous coincidence of names that his name should also be part of Great Britain. The Great Britain, the composer came from Great Britain, the country. And he was a great composer. Uh, he was born on November 22nd, I believe it was November 22nd, 1913. Uh, that was just before the outbreak of World War One, which uh, began when he was a year old. He was born and raised and lived most of his life in Britain, in East Anglia, which is a low-lying seacoast area northeast of London, uh, bleak, uh, completely dominated by the winds off the ocean and by the uh, craggy, craggy landscapes, and um, a very dramatic kind of setting. And Britain was born and raised there and never really left emotionally. And toward the very end of his life, he uh, created the Aldborough Festival, a music festival he had a big hand in creating, uh, which takes place in East Anglia every year and has ever since, I think, 1937. Anyway, his background then was as that of a prodigy. He was very precocious, and when he was still in his teens, he came to London. He studied at the Royal Conservatory of Music with Frank Bridge, who was one of the leading British composers as well as teachers at that time. And he made a splash when, at the age of 20, he produced his first big uh, big work, a quartet for oboe and strings, 1934. He was 21 when it was performed. And then followed that shortly after with uh, variations on a theme by Frank Bridge, his own teacher, and he also wrote a choral piece called A Boy Was Born, and he wrote that at the age of 20. So he began composing when he was still in his teens, and he was a success at it. However, in 1939, Britain and Germany and France went to war with Austria and, and uh, Austria-Hungary and Russia and uh, other countries being drawn in. At that time, it was called the Great War. Today, we call it the First World War. It was really neither. 
It was not the First World War. That was actually in 1760, 1756 to 63, because all several continents were involved in that one. And it wasn't the Great War because just 21 years after the end of the First World War, the Second World War broke out and it was far, far worse. But Britain was a lifelong pacifist. He did not believe in carrying guns. He refused to, uh, you know, to fight in a war. And at the same time, he also had another characteristic, which was a peculiar thing to have in Britain at that time. He was a out homosexual. And his partner was a tenor whose name was Peter Pears. It's spelled P-E-A-R-S. It looks like pears when you see it, but it's always pronounced Pears. And Britain and Pears were already a couple and an out couple in 1939. This was dangerous because homosexuality in England was still a crime until 1967. And in Scotland, it was not uh, decriminalized until, would you believe, 1980. So they could theoretically have been arrested and tried and convicted of uh, crime of sodomy, uh, as Oscar Wilde was uh, some years before. And it ruined Oscar Wilde's career, as you know. Anyway, Britain and Paris peers, I should say. I caught my own trap. Britain and peers sailed for the United States when war broke out in 1939 and came to New York. And they lived for a while in Brooklyn. And when you hear the names of the people who lived in this apartment building, you are going to laugh out loud. Because in the same apartment building in Brooklyn were Britain and peers the composer and the tenor, W.H. Auden, the expatriate poet, Carson McCullers, uh, the American novelist, Paul Bowles, a both composer and writer, and his wife Jane, who is also an artist, and Gypsy Rose Lee, the stripper. <laughs> they were all friends together in this one Brooklyn apartment building. And I would have loved to have been there, uh, the fly on the wall, to hear what they talked about and what they said to each other. Anyway, they stayed in the United States, uh, Britain and Pierce did, until 1942. And then as the war heated up, they decided to come back to England, and Britain registered as a a conscientious objector. And they went back to composing. And during the war, he produced the first piece of his that I knew well. And I'm still a great fan of this piece. It's a beautiful piece of music. If you would uh, ever come across the serenade for tenor, horn, and strings by Benjamin Britten. Uh, The original recording was by, guess who, Peter Pears who was the tenor. And Dennis Brain, who was the foremost horn player in England at that time, uh, was the horn soloist. The work consists of poems by various English English poets, um, one of whom was Tennyson. Uh, I don't remember all of them offhand. But uh, it is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful and stunning work. And it has a common theme uh, because the poems all have something in common. Uh, 
<laughs> I came across this work because I, in my junior year of college, I took a class in music criticism. And I had a wonderful professor whose name was Marshall Bialowski. I never knew what happened to him. Uh, he was a composer himself and also a wonderful teacher. And he introduced us to the, the, the serenade for soprano horn and strings. Britton was not writing operas yet, but he was always a great writer of vocal music. And he also wrote other kinds of vocal music. He wrote two pieces of religious music for performance in churches. And he wrote uh, the serenade and the quartets and uh, four quartets, the uh, dramatization of poetry by Rambeau. Uh, he had a great talent for writing for the voice. And of course, that took full flower when he wrote his operas. The most important of all Britain's operas, and the one that uh, is most performed and is considered his greatest stage work, is the, po is the uh, opera Peter Grimes, based on a poem about East Anglia from a poet from East Anglia named George Crabb, who lived in the same area that Britain grew up in. And Peter Grimes sums up in poetry and in music, some of the emotions of Benjamin Britten as the outsider. Peter Grimes is the ultimate outsider in the opera. And, of course, uh, Britten as a homosexual and as a pacifist was certainly an outsider in the world in which he lived. Peter Grimes is a great, music, great piece of music. It has, among other things, the four C interludes. And they're so dramatic, you can practically hear and practically feel the waves of the ocean crashing against the shore when you listen to that music. And I've seen Peter Grimes a number of times. I saw it with the L.A. Opera one year, not too long ago. Um, and it is a great opera. He also wrote an opera on the story of Billy Budd, a novel by Herman Melville, an American, who also was an outsider, and as was Billy Budd. Um, it's an unusual opera in that it doesn't have a single female voice in it. Every character is male, and all the voices are male. You don't find that trick pulled off very often. And then he wrote more operas. He wrote one called The Turn of the Screw on a story by the American writer Henry James. And it's a horror story, a ghost story it turned into an opera. But for all the music that he wrote and all these great pieces... His real masterpiece did not come until later in his life. In the meantime, he wrote an opera for Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953 called Gloriata, and I've never heard it, and it never was very successful. He wrote an opera on the Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare's play, which I saw about two or three years ago and didn't think very much of. And then later in his life, even after his uh, great war reclaim, which we're going to talk about in a minute, he wrote an opera on the story by Thomas Mann, Death in Venice. And at the end of his life, 1976, when he was 63 years old and uh, was about to die, Queen Elizabeth made him a life peer. Peter Piers was his life partner, and Piers Peer was Benjamin Britten. 
he became known as Benjamin Lord Britain of Aldeborough and died in December 1976. All right, now what is this great work that I'm talking about? In 1943, I think it was, or 42, or somewhere in there, uh, the Germans bombed the cathedral town of Coventry in England and totally destroyed the medieval cathedral as well as the, the town of Coventry. Many people were killed. It was a terrible tragedy. The British knew all about it. They knew it was coming. And they couldn't do a thing to stop it because if they gave the Germans any indication that they knew that the bombing was coming by, for example, uh, moving people out or putting extra defenses or anything, they were terrified that the Germans would figure out that they had cracked the Enigma Code which the Germans considered so impossible to crack that they never bothered to change it. And because Britain had the Enigma Code throughout most of the war, uh, it was one of the major factors in winning the war for Great Britain and the Allies. So Coventry had to be sacrificed on the altar of keeping the secret of the Enigma machine being, a code machine being discovered. Well, Coventry Cathedral was going to be rebuilt after the war, and uh, it was supposed to be rededicated, and the uh, masters of Coventry Cathedral wrote to Benjamin Britten and asked him to write a memorial piece to be performed at the rededication of the new Coventry Cathedral. He loved the idea. And he jumped at it. He began composing it in 1960. It took him a year and a half. And when he finished, he wrote, he had written what uh, we call today and what he called the War Requiem. And it was performed at the Redification in Coventry in 1961. It was an enormous occasion, a huge hit. It was written originally for a couple of two orchestras, one a small chamber orchestra within a large symphony orchestra. It was written for tenor, for baritone, for soprano, for children's chorus. Uh, originally, I think it was a boys' chorus. It's now done by boys and girls. Uh, and it was, as I say, a, a, a huge musical occasion. I remember it well when uh, when it came when it first was performed. Britain cast the three individual solos according to his pacifist feelings. He had as the English tenor, well, you know who he had as the English tenor, Peter Pears. As the baritone, he cast Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, who just died last year, the great German baritone who had himself served in the Wehrmacht in the Second World War. And for the soprano role, he chose Galina Vishnevskaya, the wife of his friend Mstislav Rostropovich, uh, the great Soviet soprano. And she also just died a year or so ago. Unfortunately, the Soviet authorities refused to allow her to leave Russia and participate in the original performance. 
So an English soprano, Helen Watts, uh, oh, Heather Harper, I'm sorry, it was Heather Harper. Heather Harper stepped in and learned the role in 10 days <coughs> so that she could perform it at the first uh, dedicatory performance. But Vishnevskaya did manage to get out of Russia and make the first recording of the War Requiem as intended. We heard it in Chicago on, in November of um, 2013, and it was cast just the way Britain had cast it, with an English tenor, a German baritone, and a Russian soprano. And that's become traditional uh, when the, that work is done. The work itself is a mixture of poetry by Wilfred Owen, who was an English poet, was an officer in the British Army, and who was killed, would you believe, one week to the day before the end of the First World War, killed in action. His poems, many of them are about the war, and his poetry absolutely enthralled Britain, uh, the pacifist. And oh, he, Britain determined to write the libretto using Owen's poetry interlaced with the traditional requiem mass that is used in the Catholic Church for the last several hundred years, so that the war requiem is in the tradition of the great requiem masses from Mozart and Berlioz, and by uh, one by a fellow by the name of Giuseppe Verdi, who <laughs> wrote what is probably considered the greatest requiem mass. Um, we heard that a little bit earlier in the year that we heard the War Requiem, we heard it on Verdi's birthday in Chicago, conducted by the leading Verdi conductor now alive, Roberto Muti, the conductor of the Chicago Symphony. And it was a fabulous performance. Well, so you have in common here these two great composers, a hundred years apart, different in almost every way, different in language, different in culture, different in everything, uh, both of whom write great requiem masses. And Britain's requiem does indeed quote little pieces of the Verdi requiem and, uh, as if pointing up the comparison. There's another work of Britain's that I have to talk about. This one is called A Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, and it's one of his purely instrumental works. It's made up of a series of themes and vari uh, variations on a theme, rather, one theme, a series of variations. The theme is by Henry Purcell, who was always considered the greatest English composer previous to the 20th century, a native-born English composer. Again, we have to leave Handel out. But uh, Purcell composed this theme for one of his operas and died in 1695. Britain wrote his Young Person's Guide on a variations on the personal theme. And essentially what he was saying, whether or not he deliberately meant it was, Henry Purcell was the last great English composer, English-born composer, and I'm the next one. And indeed, he is considered the greatest English-born composer, English-speaking, English-born composer that the islands have produced since Henry Purcell died in 1895. 16, what am I saying? 1695. More than 300 years ago. 
So, uh, that's Britain. <laughs> that brings us to the second of our trilogy of great, uh, great composers celebrating anniversaries, Richard Wagner. He was born in uh, Germany, in Leipzig, in, on May 22nd, 1813. And he died in February, on the 13th, in 1883. Okay. You notice a couple of 13s here? <laughs> there are a lot of 13s associated with Richard Wagner. The most famous case of triskaidekaphobia that I know among composers. You know, triskaidekaphobia means fear of 13. Arnold Schoenberg, the 20th century composer who was the modernist who uh, devoted so much effort to 12-tone music, Arnold Schoenberg had a devastating fear of 13s. And wouldn't you know it, he died on the 13th, <laughs> as Wagner did. So, uh, about Wagner. Uh, he was born in miserable circumstances. Uh, his father was an actor who didn't live very long after uh, the baby was born. And he was raised by his mother and uh, under difficult circumstances. He was uh, always interested in the theater, loved the theater, and loved the theater without music as well as with it. He didn't start out as a composer. He started out as an actor and as a theater person. But by 1834, when he was 21 years old, he wrote his first operatic work. That is to say, theater with sung rather than spoken lines. It's called the Feen, which means in German, the fairies. And it's never heard today. I don't know if anybody ever does it. Two years later, he wrote another opera. Uh, it's called Das Liebesverbot, Forbidden Love. It sounds uh, like something out of a you know, romance novel. Actually, it was based on Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. <laughs> but uh, that also was not um, very successful, although it actually was performed uh, in Magdeburg in Germany. When he was twenty, Wagner was twenty-three years old. The year after he wrote it, then in eighteen thirty-nine, he wrote his first success. He had gone to Paris, and he was uh, impressed by the Paris Opera, which staged what we call today grand opera. Boy, was it grand! Five acts in every opera, huge casts, enormous librettas, huge long stories, four or five-hour long works. Uh, when the French did something, they didn't do it small. Well, he wrote a story based on a, uh, a Roman story of the last of the councils, Rienzi. And it was performed, not in Paris, but in Dresden, three years after it was written. It took him three years to get it performed. But in 1842, it was staged. The same year, Verdi's first opera, uh, not his first opera, but his first big hit, staged in Italy at La Scala. See parallels beginning to uh, emerge here? 1842, Wagner's first big success. 1842, Verdi's first big success. Then followed, in short order, operas that we hear all the time now. Rienzi is done sometimes today, 
but all the rest of the Wagner works are done over and over again everywhere in the world. The Flying Dutchman, 1842, Tannheiser, 1845, Lohengrin, 1848, and then he uh, got in trouble with the law because in 1848 there were revolutions all over Europe and particularly in Germany, and Wagner participated in the revolution. And that did not sit well with the authorities who uh, reestablished their power after the revolution. And he had to take off, leave Germany, and go to Switzerland. And he stayed in Switzerland for 12 years. While he was there, he wrote pieces called um, The Artwork of the Future, Opera and Drama, uh, and he went out to express his theories of what opera or music drama ought to be, and then he started writing it. What he thought was that opera had become too conventional. It was a series of set pieces uh, tied together loosely by the plot, but what Wagner was after was his total experience that I talked about earlier. And to do that, he wanted to develop a continuous opera, continuous music, from the beginning of the first act to the end of the last act. There would be no gaps, in the, as there were in uh, Mozart opera, for example. Um, so Wagner took a hand in everything from the stage directions to the plot, uh, to writing his own libretto, he wrote all the words himself, and then he sat down to write the music. He wrote the words backwards. In other words, he started with the end when <laughs> wrote to the beginning, and then he went back and wrote the music from beginning to end. Uh, there are four operas that make up what he called the trilogy of the ring. Now, you know, a trilogy has three operas, right? Or three things or something? Well, his trilogy has four operas in it, <laughs> because he called the first one not part of the trilogy, but a prelude to the trilogy. I don't care what you call it, the four operas collectively are known as the Ring of the Nibelung, and it took over 20 years to write and over 25 years to get produced, and they are an absolutely enormous undertaking. They were huge at the time he wrote them, and they're so enormously enormous today, hardly anybody can afford to stage them. The L.A. Opera almost went bankrupt trying to do it. Uh, the L.A. Opera did it successfully, but uh, they had to take two or three years before they got the money back that uh, they spent to pay just for doing those four operas in, uh, in one season. Or they did it over four seasons. Anyway, uh, then Wagner broke up in the middle of the ring. He hadn't finished it yet. He wrote the first two operas and part of the third. Uh, I should say the prelude and the first two, right? Part of the first two. Anyway, he took a year, uh, hiatus of 12 more years between 1857 and 1869 and went out and wrote two other great operas, music dramas he was calling them by now, Tristan and Isolde, which is some people consider his greatest work, and his great comedy, The Meistersinger von Nuremberg, which is based on true characters, real people, and a pretty much invented story, but uh, the characters are real. They come alive. And then he went back and finished the ring with Siegfried, about the young hero who is fearless, and 
Anna Russell, the great musical comedian, said all kinds of things about uh, Siegfried. He's handsome, and he's young, and he's fearless, and he's stupid. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't intended to be a comedy. And it ends with the Twilight of the Gods, Gata Dagorun. And after that, he wrote, he wrote one more. And this one he didn't even call a music drama. He called it a sung festival play. And it's a religious drama called Parsifal. It used to be done on Easter every year. I don't think it is anymore. They, it's now done more more frequently. But he wrote it to be done only in his own theater in, in Germany, in Bayreuth, and only on specific occasions when he was there. He wrote it, finished in 1882, it was performed, and the year after that, he went to Venice and died in Venice, death in Venice. The same story Thomas Mann wrote, taking off on the, the fact that Wagner died in Venice, that Britain turned into an opera, Wagner actually lived. He died in Venice. These connections are just fascinating, and they get more and more unbelievable as we go on. All right, how many operas did Richard Wagner write, then? Operas and music dramas together. Well, uh, start with the Fane and uh, the Leaves for Boat, and then four ring operas, uh, Flying Dutchman, Tannhäuser, Lohengrin, that's uh, seven, uh, eight, nine, ten, and then he wrote uh, Tristan and Isolde and Meistersinger and Parsifal. How many does it total up to? Thirteen. Count the letters in the name Richard Wagner. R-I-C-H-A-R-D is seven. W-A-G-N-E-R is six. Thirteen. Born in 1813. Entered the conservatory in 1831. All right, 1813 is not only a year, but if you add up the numbers 181813, you get 1 and 8 is 9, and 1 is 10, and 3 is 13. 1831 does the same thing. 1 and 8 is 9, and 3 is 12, and 1 is 13. Richard Wagner was surrounded by 13s. What kind of a life did he have? Well, he was one of the biggest liars, cheaters, uh, crooks uh, of his time. Uh, Wagner thought absolutely nothing of taking his best friend's wife. He did. I uh, married her later. Uh, his friend forgave him eventually, but uh, it caused a fuss. Anyway, he also uh, accepted money for... You know, two or two or three times for the same work. Uh, he was a notorious anti-Semite, uh, and in fact, his anti-Semitism came in conflict with his greed at one point. When he had written Parsifal, which is this Christian symbolic sung play, the, the one conductor he wanted to do it was a man named Hermann Levy, who was Jewish, but Levy was the great conductor. Uh, Wagner said, all right, Levy, I want you to do Parsifal, but won't you convert to Christianity first? And Levy said, hell no, I'm not converting. You want me to do the opera? I'll do the opera, but I'm not converting. 
Wagner gave in, and Hermann Levy conducted Parsifal because Wagner wanted the best conductor to make his work a success. So there goes his anti-Semitism, uh, which is in deep, but uh, unfortunately had much deeper repercussions. Uh, of course, Hitler went crazy over Wagner and used to play Wagner in the concentration camps all the time. I had a terrific fight with my stepdaughter. Um, we never really resolved it. She said, how can you listen to that uh, SOB Wagner's music? And I said, well, if I wouldn't listen to Wagner, it would be the same as Wagner's refusing to listen to Mendelssohn, wouldn't it? And it was just a, you know, his, he was a horrible man. The great mystery is, how did such an awful person write such glorious, wonderful music? Because Richard Wagner was, uh, without question, the greatest German opera composer, and almost certainly the greatest German composer other than Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms. And yet, what a jerk. So uh, that's a mystery I don't think we'll ever solve. Okay, this brings us to oh uh, Wagner's, Wagner's life. He was married twice, but uh, in between he had... Uh, a long and passionate affair with another married woman. Um, not exactly a faithful husband. Uh, not exactly a, a nice guy. That brings us to the third of our three great celebrants of uh, the 13s. Uh, 2013, 1913, and 1813. And this is the youngest of the two great 1813 composers. Born in 1813, Giuseppe Verdi, or as we know him in English, Joe Green. <laughs> Verdi came from bitter poverty. His father was an innkeeper um, in a little village in the northern part of Italy. Uh, when he was born, he was just a baby, Napoleon's troops came by, and the story goes that Verdi's mother hid him in the church attic or something like that until the, the French soldiers went by to keep him safe from the, from the French uh, going through the town. Verdi had a taste for music as a child and loved to play. And there was a man in town who uh, sponsored him, who paid for music lessons for him and paid for him to go to the conservatory and what have you. And, of course, Verdi felt very uh, indebted to this man and eventually married his daughter. He applied to the conservatory in Venice. Was it Venice or Milan? It was Milan, I think. But he was turned down because they said he was too old. He was 17. <laughs> well, he went back and eventually did indeed graduate uh, and married this young wife, and they had two young children. Meanwhile, he began writing in operas, and he wrote one called Oberto. Um, I don't remember what the, the subtitle is, but anyway, it, he sent it to La Scala, where the producer uh, was looking for new people with young, young people with new operas. Well, this producer showed it to look, look, look at the score, and he said, eh, maybe there's something in this, and he showed it to some of his singers. 
One of them happened to be his leading soprano, who was also his mistress, whose name was Giuseppina Streponi, a beautiful Italian name. Streponi took a look at this and said, Hey, uh, lover, you got to produce this. This has merit. She saw it herself. Her father was a composer. She was a graduate of the conservatory. She was nobody's fool. And she became a first-class singer and was the star of La Scala under her, uh, what would you say, uh, under her paramour's uh, leadership. All right, Oberto gets produced, and it's a minor hit. And on the strength of it, Verdi uh, was offered a contract to write some more operas. He asked Scriponi, who was, you know, who was his, uh, what would you say, muse in this, uh, how much should I ask? And she says, you can ask anything, but don't ask any more than Rossini gets. <laughs> so uh, Verdi took uh, Scriponi's advice and got, a, got an advance. And then he went back to write those uh, other operas under the contract. And then his wife died. And then his son died. And the next year his daughter died. And he was left absolutely bereft. Everybody close to him, except, of course, his patron uh, in the village, had died. And he was just devastated. He went back to uh, Milan. He says, I, I'm not going to write any more operas. Here, take your libretto and shove it. Well, the repressario at, uh, at the opera indeed took the libretto back because he figured he had another composer he could give it to, which he did, and it was eventually written by some other composer. But then he gave Verdi another libretto to look at. Verdi said, I told you I'm done writing operas. I'm going to go back to Musetto and be a church organist. Uh, he's told, well, take this with you. You don't have to look at it. Uh, when you get a chance, when you, when you feel like it, uh, just let me know what you think. Well, Verdi takes it home and leaves it on the table and does nothing with it. After a while, he happened to flip it open, and it fell open on a page that is describing a chorus of the Hebrew slaves in Babylonia under the rule of the Book of Nezer. And Verdi was struck with the poem, um, how does it go? Uh, fly wings on thoughts of gold. And he was fascinated, and he began to think about writing something for this. And he did write it, and he brought it back to uh, Milan, and it was bought, and it was produced. And by this time, Verdi and Straponi had been seeing each other. She was the leading soprano in his first big hit. The opera is called Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, or for short, Nabucco. And it's done to this day. It's been performed continuously since it debuted in 1842. And Giuseppina Straponi was the star. Not only did she help get his first opera produced there, she starred in his first big hit there. And pretty soon, Straponi and Verdi became absolutely inseparable. It took them 10 years or 11 years before they got married. He took her back to this little village that he was from, and, of course, the villagers were scandalized. This was a, a, an unmarried woman. Uh, they weren't married, and she had had a couple of kids already by this time by other men. 
They were absolutely scandalized. Verdi refused to give up. Uh, he said, you know, I'm with her and you'll take it or, or leave it, you know. And since he was so important and such a, a great figure in music, uh, they left it. He turned out a string of operas, about 13 of them, 12 or 13 of them, over a period of less than 10 years. He called it working like a galley slave. Some of those operas are still done. Some of them have been revived after not having been done for many years. But then he composed, in 1851, Rigoletto. And that really broke, uh, broke all the records. It is today one of the most performed operas. It is a great, great opera based on a great play by uh, Victor Hugo and a nasty story about a libertine duke and a uh, young woman who sacrifices herself for him, not realizing that he's not worth it. And it made a great hit. The next year, he turned out Il Trovatore, which she was writing while he was supervising the rehearsals for Rigoletto. Il Trovatore is an impossible plot based on a Spanish play, but it's got some absolutely wonderful music in it, including uh, Miserere and uh, just uh, wonderful stuff. And the year after that, he came up with La Traviata. He was late, uh, asked later in life, what's your favorite opera of all the works you wrote? And he said, well, I'm a professional musician, and as a professional musician, oh, it has to be Rigoletto. But if I were just a layperson, it would be La Traviata. La Traviata is the story based on a French play, again, by Alexandre Dumas' son, the young Dumas. The leading character in the play is called Marguerite Gautier. In the opera, she's called Violetta Valerie, and her real name was Marie de Fuisis. And she was a courtesan in Paris who uh, hung around with all the wealthy men and died in her 20s from tuberculosis. Verdi turned her into a wonderfully sympathetic character who falls in love with Alfredo Germont, who uh, is a young man who loves her very much, but is a hothead and not very uh, not very thoughtful. And... Uh, they uh, can't get married because uh, if they do, it means that his sister won't be able to find a proper bourgeois husband. And so they, uh, she, she leaves him. She breaks up with him. And as she's dying, finally he finds out what's happened to her, and he comes back, and they're reunited, and then she dies on her deathbed. Well, it's great melodrama, but it's also fabulous music. Great, great music. The part of Violetta is one of the prime soprano parts. Every soprano who has the voice for it wants to do Violetta because she's just such a great character. She's on stage for almost the entire two and a half hours of the opera. She only gets off for, I think, one part of one scene. Otherwise, she's on stage the whole time. It's a physical challenge. It's a vocal challenge. And it's a, a triumph when it's done right. And it often is. So, anyway, that was the great trilogy of uh, his middle years. And he went on from then to write a grand total of 26 operas. Plus, he revised two of them, so much so that uh, they're like new operas, so it's really more like 28 operas. Uh, 
He wrote mostly in, French, in uh, Italian, but he did write a couple in French for the Paris Opera. His career as an opera composer extended from 1842 to 1893. He wrote operas for 51 years, and everything he wrote as he got older, he got better. The most amazing thing about Giuseppe Verdi is that there was never a sign that he was declining in any way. He wrote his greatest music, his greatest works, when he was well over 60. He wrote his last great opera when he was 79. And he wrote his great, last great religious work when he was 83. And all this time, there was one constant in his life. At his side was Giuseppina Strapponi, who became Giuseppina Strapponi Verdi. They were together from roughly 1839 or 1840 until she died in 1897. 57 years together. They were inseparable. They went everywhere together. Wherever he went, she went. Whatever he did, she did. She was the, the power behind the throne. She supported him. She loved him. She cared for him. She had friends who she used and worked with uh, at his behalf. And they made a, a wonderful couple. Uh, the love that was there had to be uh, just the exact opposite of Richard Wagner. So here you have a one composer of the three is a, a lifelong uh, homosexual partner with his lover. The, uh, the great lover, Wagner, had at least two wives and a, uh, several others on the side. And then there's Verdi, who was married twice all right, but after he met Strapponi, uh, that was the end of his uh, his uh, eligibility, shall we say. Um, women loved him, and one of his singers uh, later in life loved him very much. But uh, whether or not he ever had anything to do with her romantically uh, is prob improbable. And, of course, Strapponi was there all the time. So there you have love in three different dimensions just as you have three composers in three different dimensions. Now, let's take a look at Verdi. How many letters are there in the name Giuseppe Verdi? G-I-U-S-E-P-P-E. -E. That's eight. V-E-R-D-I is five. Eight and five is, you got it, 13. How many operas did Wagner write? 13. How many operas did Verdi write? 26. Twice times 13. <laughs> um, Verdi also uh, had, uh, let's see, the number 39 comes in to his, uh, his biography there someplace. And 39, like uh, the numbers we talked about with Wagner, comes down to 3 plus 12 plus 1, there it is, 13 again. So not only was Wagner full of 13s, but he shared the 13s with Verdi. And what day, pray uh, tell me, did Verdi die? Well, it wasn't the 13th, but it was January 27th, 1901. Mozart's birthday. Mozart being the third of the three greatest all-time opera composers. So there you have it. Verdi...
Wagner, Mozart. Just absolutely incredible. Um, Verdi and Wagner never met. But there's a great story about that. I don't know if it's true or not. But the story goes that Wagner came to Venice, as you know, late in his life. And Verdi lived in Venice part of the year when it was too cold in Milan. Um, So Wagner decided he was going to get to see Verdi while he's in Venice. But he was too embarrassed to go to Wagner and make a date because they were considered great rivals. If you liked Wagner, you were supposed to hate Verdi. If you loved Verdi, you were supposed to hate Wagner. So it was politically, uh, what was it say, politically incorrect for them to be um, to meet except by accident. Well, supposedly, supposedly the story goes that Verdi, who was a, a very modest man, he didn't want to uh, impose on Wagner. I, I had that backwards. It was Verdi who didn't want to impose on Wagner, but Verdi wanted to meet Wagner. Um, Verdi supposedly hired a gondolier to take him to wherever Wagner was in Venice, follow Wagner around in his uh, in his gondola with his family and uh, catch up with him and uh, have them meet. Well, the gondolier, according to the story, would uh, take as much money as Verdi had in cash and then follow Wagner's boat, but be deliberately not catch up with it, ask for more money. <laughs> before he would catch up with Wagner's boat, and Verdi would dig into his pocket and come up with some more money. When Verdi finally had no more money left, the gondolier quit, (laughs) and Verdi never got to meet Wagner. At least that's the way the story goes. Um, All right. So that is uh, some of the relationships between these three great composers. Now, Wagner never wrote a requiem, but Verdi did. The Verdi Requiem is considered, if not the greatest of all settings of the, of the Requiem Mass, certainly one of the two or three greatest settings of the Requiem Mass, along with Mozart and Berlioz and maybe Benjamin Britten, uh, now coming into focus uh, more and more as, a, as a, a truly great composer, especially that work. The War Requiem is a stunning piece of music, 20th century music, and yet based on the ancient Latin mass, partly, and on the poetry of Wilfred Owen. Uh, What a a story. And that's just three composers, the relationships between them. All right, uh, I've been talking for a little over an hour now. So I'm going to ask anybody who wants to ask any questions. Uh, anybody want to talk? I will, I'll start. And I'm, I'm the one that knows the least about classical music. But I want to ask you, did Benjamin um, Britten's pacifism show in any of his works? Oh, yeah. It shows up in the War Requiem. Ah, okay. I'm sorry. Of course. Uh, I'll read you, if you'll let me, the last lines of the War Requiem. Please. Um, Let's see, here it is. Tenor and baritone sing, Let us sleep now. Both of them have been wounded in battle, and they both are dying. And their last line is, Let us sleep now. And then the children's chorus, and the soprano, and the full adult chorus sing, May the angels lead you into paradise. May the martyrs receive you at your coming. 
and bring with you bring you into the holy city of Jerusalem. May the choir of angels receive you, and with Lazarus, once poor, may you have eternal rest. Eternal rest give to them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. That's pretty beautiful, very powerful. That's translation of the, uh, the wow. Latin Mass. Well, thank you. Let's see if others have questions, please. Give your name and ask the question. Matt Cox, Ira, my question is about these operas, these the, the four operas of Wagner and then some of the opera of Verde. Besides singing, do the opera cast act as well? Like when she's on her deathbed, is she laying down, is Violetta laying down while she's singing? I've always wondered that as a blind person who's never been to the opera. Now, I'm not quite sure I get, get the question. Uh, repeat that again. Was it, was it Wagner you were talking about with his philosophies and theories? No. I, I was just curious to know if, while the, in these operas, what, like uh, in, with Violetta and then with the Wagner operas, yeah. do they have sets? I mean, are these actors actually acting while they're singing? Oh, so okay. like when she's on her deathbed, is she laying down and she's singing to her yeah. lover as she's okay. dying? Okay. Well, yes, sometimes. Uh, in, in some operas, uh, you get people singing on their knees. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get them singing lying in bed. Sometimes you get them singing on the floor. Okay. <laughs> I didn't uh, know that. Of course, one of the great conventions in opera is uh, somebody gets stabbed or shot, mm-hmm. and ten minutes later they start singing again. <laughs> <laughs> because they're, they're not dead yet. <laughs> but uh, you have to, you know, you have to... Uh, um, little, take a little artistic license here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it is absolutely fabulous. I'm going to give you an idea about the, some of the difference between Verdi and Wagner. Wagner's okay. Parsifal lasts for five and a half hours. The first act alone is two hours long. Good Verdi's last opera, Falstaff, which is an absolutely brilliant comedy based on Shakespeare that he finished when he was 79, uh, takes less than two hours to perform the whole opera. And yet, they're both great works. Two great composers, writing in different styles, and different ways, uh, and both writing masterpieces. And yet, they're so different. Verdi, through his life, as I said before, kept getting better and better and better. His greatest dramatic opera, his greatest uh, serious opera, Otello, he turned out when he was 73. And uh, he had been writing it for several years before anybody knew that he was writing another opera. He kept it quiet. (coughs) His librettist was a young man whose name was Arrigo Boito, who was the son of a Polish mother and an Italian father. And... Boito was a uh, classic-type intellectual. He knew everything about everything. And he was a poet, and he was also a composer. He wrote an opera of his own, Mephistopheles, that's still produced. But Boito managed to get Verdi interested in writing again. And when he transformed Shakespeare's Othello into an Italian libretto for for, uh, Verdi, he did something that was an absolute masterstroke. And I don't think anybody else would have dared do. Boito simply cut the whole of, Verdi, of, of Shakespeare's first act, which takes place in Venice, 
cut the whole act out except for two lines, and thus made the work short enough to be produced as an opera, because singing takes longer than speaking. So a play rarely can be turned into an opera without cutting a lot of stuff out of it, because it takes too long. Wagner, of course, never cut anything. But <laughs> that's why five and a half hours. <laughs> but uh, Boito then, got, you know, Verdi was still uh, so thrilled with working with the younger man, uh, who he treated like a son. And, uh, and Boito and Verdi got their heads together again. Verdi had always loved and admired Shakespeare. From the time he was a young man, he he said at one point in his life, he carried Shakespeare in his pocket. He loved Shakespeare so much. And uh, he couldn't read English. He had to read Shakespeare in Italian translation. Mm-hmm. But he wrote three operas on Shakespearean texts in his lifetime and wanted to write another one. He, was, he kept thinking about writing a King Lear, but he never got around oh, to it. Cool. However, uh, after she saw... Oh, Tell, uh, let's see, after she saw, what was it? Uh, oh, yeah, Queen Elizabeth. After she saw the Merchant of Venice, not the Merchant of Venice, uh, what am I thinking of? Um, Henry the Fourth, Part Two. After she saw that, she said, I want you to write a, another play for me, Will, where Falstaff falls in love. And so Shakespeare came up with The Merry Wives of Windsor. <laughs> well, uh, Verdi and Boito turned The Merry Wives of Windsor plus lines from the earlier uh, Henry IV play into Falstaff. The story of the uh, opera about the fat knight who was uh, absolutely cynical, the total opposite of a heroic character, and all kinds of fun. And that opera, by the way, is the last, the last opera Verdi wrote, ends with a fugue you know what a fugue is? Yeah. No. Well, you'll hear it in church a lot, church music a lot, where there's one, one oh, melody, and then, oh, here, three blind mice. Three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run, see how they run. <laughs> then the second voice comes in, three blind mice, three yeah. blind mice, see how they run. And uh, then a third voice comes in, see, but uh, that's, that's what a fugue is. Yeah. <laughs> I and think I know friends who ends, did that on the piano way back he when. And Falstaff with a brilliant fugue, and the words are, he who laughs last, laughs best. Oh. Verdi's life in a, in a nutshell. Okay. I've always admired Verdi. He's one of my idols uh. because uh, of that fact that he never gave up. He never, never would quit on anything, and he kept working and working and working until he got better and better and better and better until he got to the very, very top. And uh, today, even today, a lot of people who are Verdi fans don't appreciate how great Falstaff is because it doesn't have any big arias. It has one tenor aria. But the music is out of this world. It's just fabulous. Okay, let's see if we can get another question or two I here. I have a question. Does any someone want to speak, please? 
I have a question. All right. Uh, I'd like to ask about the language. Is the operas are the op- the composers? Do they write the language, the opera in the language that they know or that they're usually speaking? Well, or, that's, uh, that's a good question. Uh, in Wagner's case, he insisted on writing in German. Uh-huh. He wanted to create German art. Uh, you know, he was a uh, what shall we say, a uh, dogmatic, patriotic German, uh, and he wanted to, he wanted to be the creator of a whole German art. So he would not write in another language. Verdi wrote in Italian for the most part because it was his native language, but he also wrote in French when the opera had to be produced in Paris, where they wouldn't do anything that wasn't in French. Mm-hmm. Uh, Britain wrote in English because, I think of both reasons, I think he wanted to create an English opera. There hadn't been much, uh, very few operas in English. Right. And he, in effect, did produce uh, a new English-language opera because there have been many operas written in English since Britain died, Mm -hmm. Uh, since he wrote Peter Grimes in 46 or 47. Um, And now we have lots of operas being written in English, and many of them are being written in America. Mm So... Uh yeah, the answer to your question is yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> and what about do they ever? Uh, what about translating the operas into other languages? Does is that usually successful or not necessarily? What are you talking about? Uh, translating the, lang- the language of the operas into other languages. For example, if they were being done here in the United States, putting some operas in English or perhaps in other ca- countries, doing them in the language uh, of that country. Bob, can you, can you repeat what you said? I can't make up. Well, if, if you want to come over here, we're done. The, the phone is really echoing here. Oh. You come over to this okay, phone. Okay, I'm asking about translating the operas into other languages other than the ones they're originally written in. I guess she's trying to ask about translating the opera into other languages. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, it used to be a big problem. <clears throat> uh, they, the uh, purists always want to hear the opera in the original language because they say you can't translate it very effectively. That's not so anymore. Nowadays, because you have the, the projections on a screen, you can have the language of the opera, original language being sung and the words being projected in whatever language you want on the screen. Mm. So that if, for example, you're in Tokyo, yeah. you might have... Uh, Madam Butterfly singing in Italian, but the characters on the screen that she's singing will be in Japanese. Oh, that's great. So okay, terrific, another question, please. Wait. Because when you go to the opera, you can know what's going on by just yeah. following the screen. Right. Do we have anyone else who wishes to ask a question? Well, Ira, as usual, I have learned a great deal. I only want to ask one more are there any good American opera composers? Yes, there are. Oh, could yes, you name one or two? Maybe I've heard of them and just don't know. Okay, well, uh, there are a number that uh, have received. Aaron Copeland, like, would he be one? No, Copeland doesn't write opera. Oh, okay. I he like wrote, uh, <clears throat> ballet, but not opera. Yeah. Uh, my favorite American operas are George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. Oh, okay. I do, too. I a, agree. Which is an opera. was designed to be an opera. Oh. For many years, no opera company would produce it, um, and it was done as a Broadway musical. But back about 25 years ago, I think it was, Houston, 
produced it on the operatic stage as an opera. And it was a huge hit. And it moved to the Metropolitan and it became one of the Mets' biggest hits. And now, now it's being done the way Gershwin intended it to be. Uh, it's, he called it an American folk opera. Hmm. Okay, that's one. <clears throat> then there's another one that's one of my favorites, partly because I love the music so much, but also because I love the story so much. That's the Ballad of Baby Doe. Baby hmm. Doe, B-A-B-Y-D-O-E. The Ballad of Baby Doe by Douglas Moore and John Latouche. Douglas Moore was a professor of Princeton, a very good American composer. And John Latouche was a poet, a young poet, who was brought in to write the libretto when uh, Moore began to write the opera. Unfortunately, Latouche died, I think of a heart attack or something, before the opera was premiered. He had finished it. And it was all ready to be done, but he never got to see it on stage because he died before it was produced. It was first produced in Central City, Colorado, because mm -hmm. it's a story set in Colorado about real people. Horace Austin Warner Tabor, who was a um, storekeeper. He was not a miner, uh, but he went out to Colorado with his wife, Augusta, from Maine, and they grub-staked a couple of miners after 25 years of poverty, whatever. And these two guys go off uh, and throw their shovels down where they threw their hats. And the shovel gets into the ground, and there's a silver mine. And Tabor got one-third of the silver mine as his grub-stake. Well, then he bought another silver mine. And he bought another one and another one and another one. And pretty soon, he was the richest man in Colorado. And he was known as the Silver King. At that point, he divorced his wife, Augusta, uh, and married a young woman who came out from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, with her husband, whose name was Harvey Doe, and her name was Elizabeth McCourt Doe Tabor. Uh, Elizabeth McCourt married Harvey Doe, and she, then she divorced him, and she married Horace Tabor. She was 30 years younger than Horace Tabor, and they lived on top of the world for a while, uh, they were incredibly extravagant. They had very little, what you would say, uh, reason taste. And the divorce uh, by Tabor of his first wife absolutely set Denver society on its ear. They wouldn't look at Baby Doe. When her carriage came by, they'd turn their heads and look the other direction. They absolutely uh, did terrible things to this young woman. Well, Baby Doe uh, stuck with Horace. And then came the 1893, the Silver Panic. Silver was demonetized, and overnight, Tabor went from the richest man in Colorado to broke. And he was already in his 60s. Uh, he couldn't work as a miner anymore, and he's 60 years old, so his friends got him a sinecure as postmaster of Denver. And he was the postmaster of Denver until he died in 1899, leaving a young widow, baby doe, uh, they had two children together. One of them, when she grew up, ran away, changed her name, and disappeared. Nobody ever know, knew what happened to her. The second one, uh, Baby Doe refused to admit what really happened to her. She claimed that the uh, second daughter was in a convent. Actually, she was a prostitute. And she died in a horrible fire in Chicago in about 1920-something. Baby Doe went on living 
in Colorado in a shack on the, at the site of the matchless mine, Tabor's most valuable mine. According to the legend, Tabor told her on his deathbed, hold on to the matchless. Well, whether he did or not, that's what she did. She tried to keep control of that worthless mine for 35 years after he died. And in 1935, she was found frozen to death at the mine shack. What a story. What a story is right. And that's the real people, right? Uh, It's a true story. Uh, The book that it's based on is called uh, Silver Silver Queen or something like that uh, by David Krasner. I think you can probably find it in the library someplace. But uh, that was the, that's the book that's built on that story. And they and they did an opera around that. And oh, Douglas Moore and John Latouche turned it into Oh, I'd love to see that. It's a beautiful, oh. lovely, wonderful opera with wonderful music in it. And it ends with uh, Horace's death, and Baby Doe sings a well, kind of a uh, religious ballad. She sings... Um, about how they will always remain together because the only thing that matters is love. Love can transcend time. Love transcends loss. Love transcends everything. Oh, Ira, we thank you so very much. I'm glued to the telephone here today, and I didn't think I would be. And we really think we'll be in touch. Wait. Get yourself some tapes and listen to some stuff. Okay, I intend to try to do that. Now, I'll tell you what my technique for learning opera was. When I was a kid, I would you know, I'd buy an opera recording. I'd listen to it 10 or 15 times, not trying to, you know, just to get it into my head. And only then would I start looking at the words and looking mm-hmm. at the translation and saying what was going on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think yeah. that's a good idea. Yeah. If you don't know anything about opera, just let the music get into your your brain a little bit. Okay. And then start thinking about it. Good, good advice. Thank you, Ira, very much. I'll be in touch. Okay, we're going to do another one of these next week. Yeah, let's be. I, I'm pretty. I, I think it's great. So maybe, maybe we'll talk about it. All right, maybe February, maybe March might be better. Yeah, I'll get in touch. All right. Thank you, Ira. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank and thank you. you, everybody. Good night, everybody. Happy good night. Year.